Get to Old Navy for the biggest sale of the year. Up to 60% off all back-to-school styles for kids and baby. Get flip-flops for 2 bucks, graphic tees for 4 bucks, shorts for $6, and jeans for $8. Right now, get the best kids' styles at kid-size prices. Just 2 4 6 and $8. Can't wait to wear it? Buy online and pick up in-store free today. Up to 60% off all kids and baby styles now at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 729 to 811. Select styles. Excludes in-store clearance. Get to Old Navy for the biggest sale of the year. Up to 60% off all back-to-school styles for kids and baby. Get flip-flops for 2 bucks, graphic tees for 4 bucks, shorts for $6, and jeans for $8. Right now, get the best kids' styles at kid-size prices. Just 2 4 6 and $8. Can't wait to wear it? Buy online and pick up in-store free today. Up to 60% off all kids and baby styles now at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 729 to 811. Select styles. Excludes in-store Easter is coming up, and I just can't wait to have the whole family in one place. And of course, what's Easter without an awesome Easter brunch? Now, I don't know about your family, but mine is a little picky, and I really wanted to impress them with something delicious. A friend told me I should check out Total Wine and More. It was crazy. They must have every wine and beer imaginable. I told one of their friendly experts my situation, and they found me just the thing. This sparkling wine is going to be absolutely perfect for brunch, even with my picky family. I know next time I need something, I'm shopping at Total Wine and More. Welcome everyone to another episode of the NBA Podcast. We have a great episode for you today. We're going to talk about Game 1 of the 2017 NBA Finals, kind of the big takeaways from that, the adjustments we'd like to see made heading into Game 2, and then we're going to have a lot of NBA draft banter as well. Before we get underway, just a reminder that you can follow us on Twitter at the NBA Pod. In our bio, you can find all of our Twitter handles, so give us a follow as well. Uh, you can find us on iTunes. We'd love it if you subscribe. Down- the Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Oh, the moon. Yeah. That's Hugo tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. hi This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Download, left some feedback. We'd love any reviews you have. And we're being hosted this year on FanRag Sports, so check them out on Twitter, at FanRag Sports, and for their NBA content, at FanRag NBA. Lots of good finals coverage, as usual. Also, the offseason, free agency, the draft, a lot of that stuff starting to roll out. So there's going to be a lot of good NBA content, even after the finals are over. Check them out, FanRag Sports. Today, joining me, as always, is my co-host, Morton Jensen. How's it going, Mort? It's going well, Brian. And we also have a special guest, Derek Bodner, basically the Zach Lowe of Philadelphia sports writers. How's it going, Derek? Thanks for joining us. It's going great. My pleasure. Uh, So, Derek, before we get underway, uh, just let our listeners know where they can find your work. Uh, Well, it's at a few places. Easiest way is just Twitter, at Derek Bodner NBA. I have my own kind of Sixers coverage thing then I do some stuff for Draft Express and The Ringer and whatnot so easiest way to get all that is is through Twitter yes all right yeah definitely give Derek a follow he is even if you're not a Sixers fan he's one of the best NBA writers out there today uh and you will learn a lot reading his stuff so we're gonna start talking with uh game one of the finals we're recording this on Friday so game one was last night uh Started off, you know, people going into the series were hoping it was going to be a good series and hoping it was going to be competitive. And for the first quarter and a half or so, it was. 
And then the Warriors just went full flying death machine. They win one thirteen to ninety one. Kevin Durant has thirty eight points, eight rebounds, eight assists. Steph Curry twenty eight points, ten assists, six rebounds. The Cavs' big three actually played pretty well. It's just the rest of the team didn't show up. So, Derek, what were the the big takeaways that you saw from Game One? Uh, well, I think the, the the first takeaway is, holy crap, Golden State's really good, and that shouldn't <laughs> surprise anyone for a team that seems it seems like they slept walk through sixty seven wins. But I mean, when you talk about you know the Cavs kind of dialing it up for the playoffs, and if you're an Eastern Conference team and you look at that and you go, man. I don't know how we're ever going to beat, even at his age, I don't know how we're ever going to beat LeBron. And then you realize you have to ratchet it up another level, even after accomplishing that Herculean feat, to beat Golden State. I mean, this is this, this is an 80s-era juggernaut, and this might be one of the best, if not the best, rosters of all time in a salary-capped age. And the way that they can space the floor and move the ball and force turnovers and get out in transition and D it up and switch everything. It's just there's so many things that have to go wrong for you to win a game, much less four games in a series. It's just it's incredible to watch. And I think we all realize that throughout their, you know, 67 win season and the fact that this team has lost one game since mid mid-March. That's absurd. That I mean, that's 2001 Lakers level dominance. Uh but to then see them go and pick apart the uh pick apart the Cavs like that. It was it was really impressive. And look, go Cleveland's not going to be if when they're negative fourteen in the turnover battle, they're just not going to have a chance against this team, and they have to be able to get themselves out in transition. They have to, you know, be able to attack that defense before it's set and get some mismatches, or they're going to end up with a lot of isolation attempts like they had last night, and that's just not a, a recipe against a, a team that's as talented as as Golden State is. Yeah, definitely, and, and you know the big fear coming in to the playoffs, frankly, was can the Cavaliers' defense, you know, is mediocre a lot during the regular season they toughened up during the playoffs but then the Warriors just I mean it it was a layup line most of the night like how many uncontested dunks did Kevin Durant have last night it felt like all it was just that was brutal I'm glad you mentioned the turnovers I mean it was the it was 20 for Cleveland four for Golden State I think I saw this on Twitter that it was an NBA finals record uh, for the fewest number of turnovers, also a Warriors franchise record, regular season or playoffs, fewest number of turnovers. I mean, more when we previewed the series, we mentioned their turnover issues because that was, you know, if if this Warriors team has a weak link, it's that is that they can get careless with the ball occasionally. So that did not happen at all during Game One. <laughs> no. So, what do you think Cleveland can do, if anything, to narrow that margin? No, that, I, I think it's it's they they really have to just keep the ball moving. Honestly, the, the, as Derek alluded to before, when you have a whole lot of isolation basketball, is that the offense becomes somewhat easy to identify, and you can make the proper reads and corrections. The ball needs to just move and move and move. And LeBron just was in isolation mode. He had to be on some level when the bench didn't show up. So, I I don't expect this huge margin. Uh, in game two, uh, but look, four turnovers for for Golden State like that is ridiculous. If they're playing at that level, you, there's nothing you you can't do, Brian. Yeah, I <laughs> I mean I think that's that's a fair assessment. If you know if they're as a team, it's just it's unfathomable. You know, LeBron had seven turnovers in the first half alone. Like for Golden State to finish an entire game with four turnovers, especially 
given how careless they could be at times, it's it was mm. just surreal. I mean, so yeah, I, I think if you're Cleveland, you kind of just have to hope for regression to the mean for both you and them. Uh, <laughs> Derek, do you have any other ideas for what Cleveland could do to kind of narrow that gap? Well, I mean, I, th- I think regression is is a very likely thing to rely on too. Like, there's no, there's no way a team that struggled that much in, in terms of taking care of the ball. I think they were 22nd in turnover percentage. That's not really a performance you can reproduce with any kind of consistency, and that that will help Cleveland quite a bit. But I think one of the big differences this year with Golden State versus last year, you know, LeBron, especially when when KD gets hot like that at the beginning of the game, he has to then go and and try to slow down KD. And I think not only does that, you know, sap some of his energy offensively, but that also doesn't allow him to play that free safety kind of role defensively that, you know, that they really rely on to force turnovers to create transition opportunities and and to really kind of get them going. And I think just having a team like this where he really can't, there's, there's no one you can slide LeBron James onto and kind of let him play that that free safety role. I think that's going to be a big key in this series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the the hope was that maybe you could do it with Andre Iguodala because he had been pretty cold from the field heading into the playoffs, or in, into the finals, I should say. I mean, he didn't do much in game one, seven points on three or four shooting, but he did hit his only three-pointer. So, you know, if Iggy's hitting, it's over. Uh, and, you know, if the concern was Iggy missed a couple games during the Western Conference Finals. His knee, you know, we, we weren't sure how his knee would hold up. Seemed like he was moving pretty well last night. I mean, one of the other things that's worth noting, you know, KD had 38, Steph Curry had 28. No other Warriors players scored more than nine points. You know, Draymond Green was three of 12. Klay Thompson remains ice cold, three of 16 from the field, zero of five from three, uh, six points on the night. So even still... I saw this stat on Twitter uh, from Dieter Kurtenbach of Fox Sports. Apparently, Clay, when he was the primary defender, the Cavs went one of twelve. So he's still making a positive impact, even though he is just, you know, in this this awful slump. Uh, Derek, do you have any ideas of, you know, what the Warriors can do to get Clay going, or do they even need to? Well, I think they're going to need to at some point. Um, like you're not going to have that turnover differential. You're not going to always have KD going off like that. Although you know these guys have talent levels where you could, it's not as crazy as it sounds. Um, you know, I think right now Clay is just in one of those slumps, and he goes through that from from time to time. Like you said, at the very least, he is such a good defensive player, and I think he's really, you know, I think he really gets credit for that now, whereas maybe earlier in his career he didn't. He's at least giving you some value, but yeah, I mean they need they need to get him going. I'm not exactly sure what the what the answer is. I mean he he got decent looks. He's had decent looks throughout these playoffs. They just haven't been falling. So it probably has more to do with, uh, you know, with Clay and his preparation and, and him kind of fighting through his for himself. But yeah, I mean he hasn't really had a a, a great game now in, in in quite some time. And there's only maybe one or two games specifically in Portland. I, I think he blew up in one of those games. But you really haven't seen typical Clay in, in quite some time, and that's a little bit concerning. But if I mean, if there's any team that can come over a guy or overcome a guy like Clay going through a slump, it's this team. Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, it's crazy that they can win by 22 points, and you know their third and fourth best guys in Dre and Clay combined for what, like 15 points. I mean, it's yeah. If you're so, here's the the overall question, I guess. I mean, more 
you and Sarah were more optimistic than I was that this was going to be a real series. If you're a Cavs fan, what consolation do you take from this game? Are there any major adjustments you'd like to see them make going into game two? And do you think, I mean, is this thing over after one game or is there still a chance that Cleveland, you know, bounces back from this is more competitive in, in game two? Well, I had a feeling you were going to ask me that. And look, last year they blew a 3-1 lead, so I'm not going to at any point say that this series is over because we saw what happened. But the only thing they can really hope to do is is kind of cut off Katie's legs, right? <laughs> at this <laughs> right. point, there's really not any other opportunity. I mean, you'd have to get Cleveland's bench really fired up because that was a huge problem. Like the two leading minute players, Darren Williams and Kyle Korver, went scoreless. You can't have that. And and then when you have J.R. Smith playing 28 minutes and, and finishing with three points, that's not helping Tristan Thompson. Also, you know, an over in 22 minutes. So the supporting cast can't really play any worse than they did. So I guess on some level that's encouraging. But there's there's no major positive takeaway from game one at all. I, I mean, I am nervous as hell if I'm <laughs> a Cleveland fan. Yeah, I mean, your, your only takeaway is that you have LeBron James. Right. That, that's right. Really, he's he's going to steal you a game or two. You hope it's early enough in the season or early enough enough in the series where it can maybe swing a tide. But, yeah, I mean, they're, they're fighting an uphill battle. And like you said, Deron Williams, he was that was one of the worst performances I've seen in quite some time. They need mm. something from their bench. They don't have the, you know, the depth that a, a team like Golden State obviously has. Nobody no, nobody does. But they need they need more. They need more from that because, like you said, LeBron had a good game. Kyrie wasn't necessarily the most efficient version of himself, but he he gave you something. Kevin Love at least contributed on the glass, even if he struggled from the field. But they need something from their bench, and last night they just didn't get it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Kevin Love, you know, we haven't mentioned him yet. 15 points, 21 rebounds, 3 blocks. I mean, compared to last finals Kevin Love, where he was just a shell of himself for most of the series, you know, that's... (laughs) If he's getting 20 boards a game, that's all the Cavs can reasonably ask of him. I will say... I mean, if I'm Cleveland, you know, they were talking last night uh, after the game about how you practice, but until you actually see the Warriors and their speed, you don't have a sense for how fast they are. So I feel like maybe if you're a Cleveland fan, that's your one hope is that like they woke up and now, you know, it's Friday morning. They're like, oh man, we really, you know, we're, we're, we're facing a juggernaut. We have to... We can't be sloppy with the ball, or they're going to hit a three on us or run the full air in transition. It's a guaranteed two points. Uh, their switch defense, you know, maybe they rethink how they do that. I will say, I mean, there is one play in particular that stands out where Kevin Love gets switched on to Kevin Durant, and Durant just looked like a serial killer. Like, he immediately drove to the baseline, right to the basket, right past Kevin Love. So, if I'm Cleveland, I'm doing everything in my power to make sure. Kevin Love never, ever has to defend KD because there's no, you know, he's not quick enough laterally to keep up with him, but you, you can't just have Kevin Love hang at the basket because then KD's just going to be wide open and hit that jumper. So that's one, you know, I don't know how you make that adjustment in a three-day stretch, or if you do, maybe you just live with those points. But, you know, I think clearly somehow slowing down Kevin Durant is the number one focus coming into Sunday. Uh, Derek, any final takeaways before we hop over to the draft? No, I mean, I'm just, uh, I'm in all watching this team and it's kind of a shame. My rooting interest in this series is which narrative do I think would be 
less painful to go through, which lit narrative would be less annoying. So it's do I want to hear about KD, you know, not even be able to win on the Warriors, or do I want to hear about LeBron blowing another another finals appearance? And I'm not sure exactly where my rooting interest is because of that. But, I mean, this is just – it's incredible to watch. It really is. And, I've, you know, we're going to look back on this team in 20 years, and it's probably still going to be just as incredible. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, SB Nation had a piece yesterday about – it was like a roundtable where they asked a lot of their writers, like, are the Warriors fun? Do you enjoy watching them? And a couple of them said yes, but most of them were like torn or no, which I, I think you're right. You know, in 20 years, we're going to look back and we're like, how did you not enjoy this team? This team's insane. Like, you can't build a team this good on NBA 2K even when you turn <laughs> trades off. Uh, <laughs> I, I will say I work with a lot of Bay Area fans, so for that reason, uh, I would really enjoy the Warriors to collapse again, but... <laughs> I just don't see it happening. What about you, Mort? Uh, any final takeaways? I just want more Rihanna. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she was the star of Game 1. I, I can't believe we're 15 minutes in we did not mention Rihanna. Uh, I mean, yeah. ra- rather talk about Rihanna than LeVar Ball, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, I guess we need to... Well, we'll, we'll get to LeVar shortly. <laughs> uh, but yes, this will be the one and only time we discuss LeVar Ball on this podcast. Uh, all right. So let's move over to the draft. Uh, Derek, as you mentioned at the top of the show, also writes for Draft Express, does great work with them. So he's very familiar. He's been pouring over these prospects for months, which is great, you know, not only as a fellow Sixers aficionado, but also just as league-wide expertise. So we're going to start right at the top. Number one pick, Boston's on the clock. Derek, what makes Markel Fultz the clear-cut number one pick in this draft? Uh, I mean, just about just about everything. Like he has almost everything you can want for out of a point guard prospect in this day and age. And obviously, the one big negative is his his defense. And look, it wasn't there at at UW, and that was a team that defense just wasn't there. Um, but he, at least, at the very least, he has tools to overcome that. Like you, you could see a path where he becomes a a pretty good defender. And I think you look through some of his, you know, high school shoe camp and U18s and whatnots, and he had some moments where he played some good defense, moments when he wasn't carrying quite the same offensive burden. So I really think he could become a really good all-around player. You know, I think what he excels at in terms of a point guard prospect is just the, you know, his balance, his coordination, his body control, his touch, his diversity of moves. Like, he has every move in the book. He has every spin move and step back and hesitation move you could want from a guy. And you combine that with, you know, 6'4 size, good athleticism, really great body control in the paint, and I think probably underrated passing and court vision. You know, he just has, he, he checks a lot of boxes. And I think in a, in a draft where once you get past him, you have to really figure out which weaknesses you're willing to overlook, which strengths are more important to you than others, and how that fits into your team concept and your team talent. He's the one guy where you could pick him up, drop him onto pretty much any team, onto pretty much any system. And I think he's he's diverse enough that he is going to fit. So I think that's why he's a number one pick. Uh, I think his scoring translates. At a re- it's it's really easy to make that projection. His combination of shooting and, like I said, his his moves and his athleticism and his coordination and his balance and his body control. It's just it's a very unique package. Well, now I'm even more devastated that the Sixers did not get the number one pick. Yeah, so one. yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, so Morton here is a. 
I, I don't even know if it's right to call you a Chicago Bulls fan anymore, Mort, but once... You, you damn well know it's not. <laughs> once was a Chicago Bulls fan and has been trying to trade Jimmy Butler for years now. So, Derek, if you're Boston, are you willing to move that pick at all? Is there any offer, uh, I mean, <laughs> aside from, like, you know, it absolutely ridiculous, you could have a full team kind of offer, like a, a completely lopsided Vlade Divac kind of thing. Any reasonable offer that you're you're weighing for that pick, or if you're Boston, do you say, you know, just, no, we're taking him. He's our point guard of the future. The only time Vlade Divac and reasonable will be using the same sentence. <laughs> right. um, I mean, you guys watched that game last night. Do you think Jimmy Butler makes Boston a real contender? No. I don't think he does. I think there's enough separation, certainly with the Warriors, but possibly with the, even with LeBron and the, and the Cavs. I don't know if that makes him a true – and look, you can't you can't play scared. Like, I do think one thing – you know, so many people are writing off the next three to four years. And look, Cleveland's an injury away from there being a real opportunity. Maybe Golden State, they're two or three injuries away from there being a real opportunity. But there's – you know, you, you, can't, you can't play scared like that. You can't build your team scared like that. But when you're talking about a, a, a talent like Markel Fultz and the guy who can really be the face of your franchise for a decade – I don't think Boston's going to be good enough if they trade that number one pick to really seriously contend, not for 50, 55 wins, not for a top two seed, but I mean for a title. I don't know if Jimmy Butler gets them there. My natural inclination would probably be take Markel Fultz, ship off some of these other guards that are are still valuable. They still still have enough left on the contract. You can get something for them and build that way. That would be how I would go, especially because they still have another Brooklyn pick in their back pocket. Right. Yeah. And we've, we've talked about this more on our last episode where we recapped, you know, what's next for Boston. Um, and we kind of landed at that same consensus where it's like, if you are not blown away by a completely lopsided offer, I mean, you get nine years of Markel Fultz, you know, it's, it's hard to turn down, especially for Paul George, you know, who is, by by all accounts, heading to L.A. in 2018, hell or high water. Uh, even Jimmy Butler, you know, it's two years of him. But, Derek, I'm with you. I don't think, you know, I, especially against the Warriors, I don't think the, the Celtics are one Jimmy Butler away from beating this Warriors team. So it, I, I think you're right that you can't build scared. And, you know, we saw Kevin Durant, you know, it's it seemed like at the end of February he broke his tibia and was out for the year and that would have tilted the balance so it's you know it's not to say the Celtics couldn't win but it wouldn't be the most likely scenario and is it worth sacrificing nine years of Markel Fultz I don't know so let's move on to the Lakers at number two uh they face you know we're gonna assume Markel Fultz goes one whether Boston keeps that pick or trades it Lakers are on the board at two LeVar Ball has been visualizing his son in a Lakers uniform probably since the day he was born. If you're the Lakers, do you make LeVar happy or do you go somewhere else? You know, I I, I do think if there's one team where De'Aaron Fox might fit really well, I think it could be the Lakers. That being said, I think there's a big enough talent gap or I would still go Lonzo Ball. Mm. And I think there's enough concern with De'Aaron Fox's jump shot that I'm not ready to put him up that high in the draft. So, yes, I think I think they should probably go Lonzo Ball. I do think they will do their due diligence. I do think they should consider Darren Fox. But to me, the second-best talent in this draft is, is is Lonzo Ball. And the only way I would, you know, real, 
Yes, I think they should go Lonzo Ball. Okay. Uh, so, you know, the, there was talk. Uh, I think the night of the draft lottery when they won the number two pick, Jake Fisher, a fellow Philly guy who writes for Sports Illustrated, reported that teams were already, multiple teams were already weighing offers for D'Angelo Russell. Uh, do you think Lonzo and D'Angelo can coexist together? Or if they choose Lonzo, uh, you know, should the Lakers consider trading uh, Russell? Well, I think offensively they can fit. I think Lonzo pushing the ball like he does will help pretty much any guard prospect, especially one who can shoot. And I think Lonzo plays enough off the ball where you can pair him with a second point guard offensively. I think the question is going to come in defensively. And having two guys like that who really struggle defending their man and fighting through screens would be tough to overcome. You know, I don't think Lonzo Ball is a complete non-contributor defensively. I think he does have really good instincts off the ball. I think he can really jump passing lanes. I think he can pinch down and hit rollers when he needs to. I think he generally makes pretty good decisions defensively, but he just doesn't have the lateral foot speed to really be an elite defender or maybe even a a good or solid defender, and he gets blown up by screens too frequently. And I think having both of them there could be really tough to to overcome. But the question comes down to what are you you really going to get for D'Angelo Russell. And yeah, there's reports out there, but a lot of it's going to really come down to the details of that trade and what's being offered. Because if it's low, then I think you, you, you give it a shot and you see if maybe Lonzo's off-the-ball defense is enough where you can get by putting him on twos and maybe even in you know non-scoring option threes and kind of hide him that way. Because I think if you can allow him to play that kind of free safety role and I think he has the size to have some versatility in that regard, you can, you can hide him a little bit defensively. So unless the offers are good, I would see if it works out. I certainly think that would be a situation where D'Angelo Russell could put up some put up some numbers offensively to keep his trade value high if it doesn't work out. So I wouldn't necessarily feel pressured to do it right now. But if there's a good offer, then yeah, I do think you have to consider it because I do think defensively that would be uh, it would be tough to build a really good defense with those two guys on the perimeter. Yeah, that does seem to be the primary concern. It, you know, offensively, I think both of those guys at least. You know, we, we've seen it with the Warriors. Like, you can have multiple guys handle the ball. Like, Draymond Green is often the leading assist guy for the Warriors, and it's fine. Uh, you know, D'Angelo is a good enough shooter. Uh, Lonzo, despite that release, you know, he hit more than 40% of his threes during his one season at UCLA, so it could work. Before we before we have the inevitable LeVar ball conversation, Derek, you mentioned that Lonzo is the second-best prospect in this draft in your mind. What offensively makes him so special? You know, I think, first of all, he's one of the best transition players you're going to see. And that's at the college level, that's going to be at the NBA level. Like, he just, he has, first of all, he can he can force turnovers, and he, he's really good at that. But he, it's not even that he has elite vision, but he will get the ball out so quickly. And a lot of times, you'll see guards grab the ball and pound it, pound it, pound it, push, push, push. You know, if he has a guy leaking, he'll find him right away. He'll have an outlet pass like, you know, like one of the, some of the really elite big outlet passers. And he will do that and he will push the ball. And he'll really incentivize his big men and his wings to run and fill lanes and reward them when they do so. So I think that's going to help the team quite a bit. But I also just think, you know, it, I, th- I do think he's going to be somewhat dependent on where he goes because the concerns about being able to create his own offense in the half court are very real. Like, he just doesn't have that burst coming off a of pick and roll. He doesn't have a whole lot of wiggle in his, his dribble. He doesn't change directions all that well. And I think he's going to struggle because of that. 
But I think when, you know, first of all, I think that shot is going to translate as funky as it does look. I mean, he made a lot of NBA three-point range attempts. He had a lot of difficult contested attempts, and I think that will help. But I think you're going to have to put him next to another guy who can really create at a high level. I think one of the interesting fits would be the Sixers and Ben Simmons. Mm. I do also think that, you know, having D'Angelo Russell there with the Lakers would help as well. But I do think there is some concern there. But when you can have force a team, and you see this a little bit with, uh, with Golden State, when you can force a defense to, you know, con- to, to, to defend every pick and roll, every big man diving to the hoop, to defend, defend every, you know, wing cutting the basket or every, every perimeter player running off of a screen 20 feet from the basket, when you have an elite passer like that who has that kind of vision, who can execute the passes, and, you know, who will reward guys cutting and rolling and, and diving and, and running off of screens – it really opens up an offense because you're forcing them to defend every action. Nobody can take a, a second off. You can make all four of your guys real threats. And I just think he's one of the, you know, he really, it, it's kind of cliche to say it, and I hate doing it, but he really does think the game at an extremely high level. And he also doesn't dominate the ball. And I think, especially as more and more players go to the two-point guard sets, you you know, you mentioned it. There's never a time where I look at it and I go, man, he's an, uh, an elite passer and a good shooter we have too much of them. Right. Like there's no there's no <laughs> duplication of those skills. That doesn't exist. What you really ask, you know, if you're looking at a, a point guard or a, a, a ball handler, can he shoot off the catch and help place, you know, basically provide value when he doesn't have the ball? And can he defend his position? And with Lonzo, he can shoot off the catch. He's a really good cutter. And I mean, he, you know, we can talk about his athleticism, whether or not he can create off the dribble. But when he gets ahead of steam and he's going, you know, in a straight line forward. He can elevate around the rim, and he's a real lob threat. And he also sees those cutting lanes very well. So he has two very key characteristics that you'd want in an off-the-ball player. I think if you have another guy who can force a double team and force a defensive rotation, you know he can then make those quick reads and those touch passes where if you, you know, kind of slide him up to the top of the key when, let's say, a, a Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid pick and roll is going on, just to bring it back to the Sixers because I cover them. Um, you know, if you swing it back out the, to Lonzo at the top of the key, he can then find that that wherever the defense is late in their rotation, make a quick, quick, decisive read and make the correct read. And I think he's going to provide a lot of value that way. I do think you're going to have to have, you know, two or three guys who are better scorers than him, than him better half-court initiators than him. But if you can get that, I think you can really un- unlock an elite potential, you know, an, an elite kind of role player offensive talent and a guy who can make everyone on their team better. Mm. Yeah, you know, I I know this is stupid, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but I've been relatively out on Lonzo because of his dad more than anything else. You know, as for speaking solely for the Sixers, it was like, I do not want LeVar Ball and the Philadelphia media to ever interact because that's just a snake pit that he would be, you know, awful in. Uh, but hearing your scouting report, especially with the Simmons and Bede, you know, envisioning that, I'm back in on Lonzo. So if the Lakers pass him up, I'm more interested in Lonzo now. I mean, look, his, his father's a pain in... I don't know what your cursing policy is, but his father's a pain in the you-know-what. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, I'm not going to tell you otherwise. I will say, I haven't talked to any real team that is too concerned, at least not concerned enough where they would draft or not draft based on LeVar Ball. Okay. Like, certainly you don't want him making comments, but I think this is much more of a media thing. Because I think, they, I think, I think there's a couple things. First of all, if you're a GM and you select Lonzo Ball, and LeVar Ball's a pain, you're not getting fired for that. And whenever mm-hmm. I talk about what will teams do, a lot of it boils down, down to what's going to get a GM fired right. at the end of the day. Um, 
drafting Lonzo and Lavar being a pain isn't going to get you fired. Draft not drafting Lonzo because you're scared of Lavar and Lonzo turning a team around and becoming a star that will get you fired. Mm. So I don't think there's a I don't think many teams are going to pass on him for that reason. I also think look, you talk about the impact Lonzo had at UCLA, and I think that's an important distinction. That team completely bought into Lonzo Ball. They bought into his personality. They bought into his style of play. That was a very cohesive locker room. And to a T, they will all tell you that they enjoyed playing with him. And I think that's something that kind of gets lost in this kind of locker room. How is this going to impact the locker room discussion? Mm-hmm. I think it's an important distinction. And also, LeVar Ball, you know, they set pretty strict guidelines of what LeVar, what they would tolerate from LeVar Ball and what they wouldn't tolerate. And for the most part, he followed that. And this is a guy who's going to be in L.A. He's got two more sons that he's bringing up. He's going to be wanting to you know, really work on their high school career, get them into college, build a big baller brand, and, and really build the brand for each of those four people, his three sons and himself. He's not going to, you know, you're not going to see him, I don't think, traveling with the team, going on road games, really spending a whole lot of time, unless it's in L.A. because he's obviously there. But if, if let's say, it's Philadelphia, you're not going to see him come up to Philadelphia and really be in the third row yelling at Brett Brown, Brown's ear. I just don't think that's going to happen. Are you going to have to live with one or two stupid comments a year from him? Yeah, probably. I don't think there's any way to deny that. But I think you can mitigate that. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the third row thing because I just immediately have flashbacks. I think it was Jaleel Okafor's rookie year where there was that report that Okafor's dad was (laughs) kind of hanging close to the Sixers bench yelling at Brett Brown. And then I'm thinking, like, put Okafor's dad and LeVar Ball next to each other. God help. God help the (laughs) entire team. But. Yeah, that's really, I'm glad that you provided, I mean, that insight, A, that teams aren't really scared of him, because I've been wondering about that, um, you know, if if it's going to affect his draft stock at all, or how much it will, uh, but B, I mean, yeah, everything we hear about Lonzo is the polar opposite of that we hear, uh, that we see with LeVar, you know, he seems like he's just a quiet, hardworking kid, like, is not going to go out of his way to be brash. It did seem like teammates liked him. And, you know, every comment I see from a teammate of his is like, yeah, this kid's really good. You know, he's going to be really good at basketball. So it's really interesting. Um, Let's go to the Sixers now at number three. Uh, You released a big board, I believe, earlier this week, uh, Sixers-centric big board. And I'm really interested because at number three, you know, I feel like the consensus, whatever consensus there is at this point, the consensus is that Josh Jackson is the third best prospect in this draft. You have Jonathan Isaac as the third ranked player on your Sixers big board. So tell me why you have Isaac above Jackson. Yeah, well, first of all, kind of the way I would describe Isaac, and I, I called it, quote-unquote, hitting a double. And offensively, I think that's probably his upside. Like, I don't see a whole lot of really shot creator in Jonathan Isaac. I don't think you're going to run much of your offense through him, I think, what he can provide offensively is, you know, of the kind of wing prospects, the forward prospects, the Isaacs, Jackson, and Tatum, I have the most confidence in his his jump shot. I think his, his release is the cleanest and the most repeatable. And I think that's a, a huge deal when you're talking about spacing the floor, especially for Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. Mm-hmm. But I think his, his defensive potential, I think he has home run defensive potential. So I think I look at some of these guys and I question, first of all, I think the Sixers are in a slightly different spot than most teams because a lot of times when you're in the top of the draft, you don't really have kind of your focal points figured out yet. You're still working through that process. And usually when you 
draft your focal points, you end up improving, even if it's only to maybe seven, eight, nine spot in the draft, but you kind of improve out of this range of the draft. But because Joel Embiid only played 31 games because Ben Simmons missed his entire rookie year, the Sixers kind of lost the games even though they have that kind of elite talent already on the roster. And certainly you can't go banking on Joel Embiid's health. You can't go um, really counting on Ben Simmons being an elite prospect yet until he does something in the NBA. But you do have, I mean, Joel Embiid is going to be one of the most dynamic players in this league if he's healthy. And Ben Simmons is someone they've already committed to as as running a lot of their half-court offense through. So I think you have to give a little bit of extra credence to how does they, how do, how do they fit with with the guys we already have because the guys we already have are more likely to be your focal points than, the, than whoever you draft at three. So I think having that confidence in Isaac's shot, knowing that I think or not knowing, but again having confidence, I think he can space the floor. The fact that he moves and cuts well off the ball, the fact that he can force turnovers and even handle the ball a little bit in transition, I just think that all matches up very well with what the Sixers need. And defensively, I mean, look, he's 6'11". He can move his feet like a two-guard. He's got a huge standing reach. He, If you look at his numbers in terms of rebounds and blocks and steals, he was an absolutely elite, productive defensive player. And also, he has that kind of versatility. I think when you watch these finals and you look at, at Golden State and the fact that they can pretty much switch any position, that's a huge benefit. It simplifies your defensive responsibilities. It puts you less likely to really have a four-on-three on the back end for the other team. And I think being able to do that at a consistent level is is a real game-changer defensively. And I think if you have Isaac and Ben Simmons and Robert Covington with Joel Embiid behind it, I really like that kind of foundation that you could have defensively. So part of it is fit with the Simmons. He is I'm not sure I'd have him three on my, on my kind of league-wide big board. And part of it is the fact that I trust his jump shot a little bit more. And I, even if he doesn't have necessarily the mindset to be a number one or a number two option, that's almost a benefit for the Sixers where he would be the third and hopefully eventually fourth option anyway. So I like him for the Sixers. I like his defensive potential for pretty much anyone. And also part of it is that I'm just not, if I look at the guys I think are going to be real focal points, the guys that could really develop into primary initiators on a perimeter, I don't have as much confidence as some people do in Josh Jackson and De'Aaron Fox. So part of it is that as well. Mm, okay. So, I mean, I'm sold on Isaac, honestly. I mean, eh- I even I mean Morton, you can attest to this. Uh, the we recorded the day after the lottery, and like, you know, at first I'm excited because the Sixers, not you know, getting the third pick is great. Getting it as part of the pick swap is even better, uh, just for yeah. the sake of hilarity. But then I sat down and I'm like, I don't love any of the options at three. Like I don't know yeah. what they do here. So. Let's say they do fall in love with Jonathan Isaac, and they, he is the third-ranked prospect on their board. Would you, if you're the Sixers, would you then try to trade down to get additional assets and still hope, you know, say you can get him at five from Sacramento or six from Orlando? Would you try to trade down so you can get something else in addition to him, or would you just stand pat at three and just grab him? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 tough to say because the what is very important mm-hmm. there. Like, certainly if you can get another good asset, uh, I have a pretty reasonable degree of confidence that he would be available at five or six, and yeah. But if it's, you know, if we were talking like a second-round pick, then no, just take the guy that you have confidence in, remove as many unknowns as you can in terms of what other teams will do or maybe even what other teams might trading up might be willing to do. So... It, it's it's hard to say because it's it's such a um, it's such an unknown and what you'd be getting back. But yeah, I, I think this is a kind of situation because the guys I do kind of like at three um, 
could be available at five or six, I would have a, I would have a lot of interest in trading down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's still let's turn to the other side of that coin for a second because you floated this on Twitter and Morton. I want to ask you this uh, to get the <laughs> the unbiased view because we're both coming from it from a Sixers perspective. <laughs> uh, so Derek, this is not a sourced thing. We're making that clear right away. This is just pure speculation. But let's say Boston shopping the number one pick, Morton. If you're Boston, would you trade the number one pick for Philly's number three, the Lakers pick, which is completely unprotected next year, and Dario Saric? Oh, that's a tough one. Now, I, you know what? I am so in love with Markel Foles, I probably wouldn't. Mm. That's that's what that's my gut there because uh, I mean when I look at Markel Foles, I see a Dwayne Wade range. Mm-hmm. That's the type of guy I think you can develop into. So I think that kind of upside that's kind of superstar level potential is just too intriguing you know dario is is you know he's amazing he's one of those guys who can really play make at the four which we know is a huge thing in the current climate of the nba uh so that's obviously very attractive but as you alluded to as well like the number three slot there are not a whole bunch of guys there. there's like the drop down after the whole Fultz and, and lonzo ball thing so afterwards, you have the Josh Jackson, the Tatum's, the Isaacs, and they are that tier below that, which makes the whole package just less intriguing. So I'm going to stick with my gut and say, no, I'm probably going to need a little bit more if I'm Boston. Interesting. See, I mean, Derek, you and I both would do that from the the Sixers side, but we, you know, I was talking with a couple other Sixers guys who run NBA assets with me, and they thought that was too much for the Sixers. They were like, hell no, we're not going to trade that much. Uh, so it's, I mean, in a sense, that might mean it's actually a fair offer if both sides aren't in love with it. That's usually the sign that, you know, you're at least in the range of it being reasonable. But uh, it's real. I mean, you know, it's interesting. I feel like the Lakers, you know, they 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 could change the draft if they don't take Lonzo at two. But assuming they do, the Sixers are the real kind of linchpin for the draft because they can go, they could take a random guy at three, you know, or take Josh Jackson, take Jonathan Isaac, who would be, you know, at least send mock drafts just completely into oblivion. If they do that, they could trade down. They could try trading up. Like there are a lot of different options. The Sixers have, which makes them really fascinating for the next couple weeks. Uh, so apologies in advance listeners. You're going to be hearing a lot more about the Sixers between now and June 22nd. Um, Derek, you mentioned, you know, Josh Jackson and De'Aaron Fox, the big issues with them are their shot. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about, you know, what you're seeing with that, how confident you are that, you know, those guys will be able to overcome that. And if they don't do their other pluses outweigh the potential that, you know, they're never consistent three point shooters. Yeah, I mean, I think they're both very big concerns. I mean, Jackson, I think he ended up shooting like 38% from three, mostly through a late-season surge, on a pretty low sample size, which is backed up by pretty much no other indicator I could find. You look at his high school results, they were, you know, he shot poorly from high school from three, from the line. You look at his free throw percentage, he shot mid-50s. You look at the form on his jump shot, and it's just, to me, it's it's a mess and an unrepeatable mess, and that's the biggest concern. I can I can deal with messes of a jump shot if it's consistent, but I don't think his is. And all of those to me kind of suggest that in that late season surge he had that three point percentage, I don't have a whole lot of 
confidence in it carrying over. To me, it's a lot like Justice Winslow a couple of years ago, where he's playing the four, he's getting a lot of space because of that, and he had kind of a late-season surge on a low sample to make his, his percentage look really good. I think that jump shot is a huge concern. Um, the hitch the hitch in the middle, the out-front release, the footwork, I think all of it is, is, is pretty concerning to me. And without that, you know, for the longest time, I had Jackson as a second-rated prospect in this draft for me. And a lot of that is from his all-around game, which I think is, is mostly still there. Like, I think he's a good defender. He doesn't quite have that elite profile of a guy like Isaac, but he probably has realized more of his potential right now defensively. He's, you know, just an active, in-your-face kind of defender. And he does have good athleticism. He moves his feet well, and he competes. And that's going to you know that's gonna go a long way in this league. He does pass the ball well. I don't think it's quite to the point of being a primary initiator. He does also have good ball handling. He can take you off the dribble. Again, I don't think it's quite... I think some people look at him as a, a future high-level scorer on the wing. I'm not sure I quite see that. But he does everything other than shooting at a level where he can contribute. And I think if he could shoot, and I have confidence he could shoot, I think it would make a, a really good third option on a team. And maybe if he improves more than maybe the, the median curve, could end up being a little bit more than that. But I think so much of that, of what he does do, is dependent on that shot. Like It's really hard to be a creator from the perimeter, from the wing, if you can't shoot. And if teams don't have to you know, respect you out of the three-point line to open up you know, an ability to attack a closeout, or if teams don't have to respect you coming off a pick and roll, it's a lot harder to do that in the NBA. And if you're going to ask me whether he's going to be kind of that, that inflection point is like a 32%, 33% three-point shooter, if you're asking me if he's going to be a consistent 33% three-point shooter, I'm just not sure I'm quite there yet. And I think that soured me a little bit. And look, I didn't drop him too far. I think I still had him top five. Because if he does improve more than I expect, the rest of the game is there where he can be a you know a real nice piece for somebody. But I have quite a bit of confidence in that shot, and it's very important. Yeah. I, I, on your Sixers big board, you still have him four. So it's not, yeah, again, yeah. it's not like you're dropping him you know to the mid-teens or even outside the first round. You're still saying he's an elite prospect, but... I mean, yeah, that is... I would definitely take him with a first round. (laughs) (laughs) Breaking news, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's the concern, especially from the Sixers' perspective at three, because as as you mentioned, you know, you need shooters alongside Simmons and Embiid. So if that shot doesn't come around, yeah, they're going to be defensively very tenacious. But we've seen, you know, (laughs) earlier in the year when Robert Covington, like, forgot how to shoot for a month, he was still, you know, an amazing defender, but... The, the rotations don't work as well if you don't have that shooter alongside Embiid. So it's definitely a concern for Jackson. Um, can you let's go to the the other top guard prospects in this draft, namely Dennis Smith Jr. and Malik Monk. Um, you have them five and six on your Sixers big board. Uh, talk to us about what you like out of both of those guys. Yeah, and I think both of those are a little bit higher on my Sixers big board than they would be on my league-wide because of, I mean, again, so much about fit with Simmons mm-hmm. and Embiid. You know, with Dennis Smith Jr., there's just, when I look at it from a Sixers perspective, there are very few guys with really high upside and both potential fit, and he's one of those guys that checks both of those boxes. You know, he, in terms of an athlete, you're not going to find really any better guard athlete in this draft, or at least not with his kind of skill level. And the fact that he can come off a pick and roll and burn you from three-point range, from mid, mid-range at the rim, he really can elevate around the rim. And I also think his passing is a little bit underrated as well. Maybe not his decision-making, but his court vision and, and, and whatnot. 
Um, you know, there's some risk there. There's some risk with his defense, which he didn't play at all <laughs> at NC State last year. There's some risk with his decision-making. And there's a risk anytime you take a 6-1 guard and put him in the NBA. And I think he kind of has a frame to overcome that. But there's still a risk factor there. But if I'm looking at it from the Sixers' perspective, like I said, the fact that he has both high upside and if he works out, he can fit. Because I do think, in terms of his jump shot, I think he shot better than I expected coming in. And he certainly shot better off the catch. And that's that's a really big one with Simmons and Embiid and working with another primary initiator in Simmons. There was a little inconsistency off the dribble, and I think he's going to have to sure that up. But when I look at what he was able to do, and if there's one player, and you could put Fultz in this group too, but if there's one player who his teammates really did nothing for him, mm. it was Dennis Smith at NC State. And it's not even, you know, when he steps onto an NBA court and he has a seven foot two guy shooting from the three-point line, like his world's just going to open up. <laughs> it's going to be a completely different game for him because you watch him. His big men had no idea how to play off him. They couldn't space the floor. And there's constantly two or three other people in the paint when he was trying to drive through the lane. So I think he could really be helped by you know the rules in the NBA, uh, the spacing in the NBA, the further three-point line, the emphasis on big men shooting, because NC State was kind of a mess in that regard. Yeah, I mean, that it sounds like I honestly didn't see much of NC State during the year, but now you know going back and starting to envision all these guys on the Sixers, it does seem like... He, it seems like Sixers Twitter especially has fallen kind of head over heels for him, especially Spike Eskin. I think well, it was like number two on Spike's YouTube big yeah. board, um, which, you know. Which is always a well-researched right. board, yes. Way. Yes, always, yeah. relying solely on YouTube highlights. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it does seem like everything I saw of Smith, you know, I, I've seen people make the comparison to Russell Westbrook, which I don't know if it, I'm quite there. But, you know, it, it, his athleticism does remind me in that mold, at least. Um, so, I mean, again, if he's a guy that I don't know if I'm the Sixers, if I take him at three. But if I could trade down and get him at five or six, I'm ecstatic about that. Yeah, I mean, he to me, he has one of the higher variances in the draft. Like, I could see him where he could be a really dynamic player, and I could see him where he eventually gets moved out of the starting lineup. Like, I could see both outcomes, and I'm not sure which is necessarily more likely. But I am a little bit more willing to gamble on that pick because, like I said, I just don't I don't see that combination of fit and upside for the Sixers at right, that spot. Right, exactly. So let's talk about Muck quickly as well because, you know, the, the upside is obvious. He's possibly the best, quote-unquote, scorer in the draft. I mean, you know, he goes off for 45 when he gets hot. Uh, the concern, obviously, is that he's 6'3", and, you know, that's very undersized for a two guard. Um, so do you think, is he going to have to transition to point guard? Um, and is he capable of doing that? Or if he stays at two guard, does he stand a chance on either end of the floor? Um, yeah. Well, so as a, a shot creator, I think he might have slightly more potential in the NBA than he did in college. And in part, you know, just because of the spacing of the NBA when people close out on him, he's going to have driving lanes open up. And I don't think he has really good court vision, but I do think he is good enough where he can at least kind of make a uh, almost predetermined read, which, again, when, when you blow by your guy because he closed out too aggressively and you have those kind of easy kick-out passes available to you, I think he can execute those. But if you're asking me, can he, you know, can you give him, ask him to bring the ball up and really initiate an offense, run a pick-and-roll from the top, 
and get guys into their sets, I'm not sure I see that kind of level of creativity or even that, that real instinct to do so. So, no, I think he's best as a, you know, as kind of an off, off-ball kind of guy. But defensively is a, a, a pretty big, con- a really big concern. And, you know, I think he can move his feet laterally a little bit. I don't think that's where he's going to have the biggest problems. The biggest problems are going to come as a defender in the, the pick and roll and against guys who are quite simply just way bigger than him. And at the two spot, I think it's going to be a quite a big challenge. And it's part of the reason why he's higher on my Sixers big board than he is on my, my league-wide because, because Ben Simmons is so unique in the fact that he's going to initiate at least a good portion of your, of your offense from you know the small forward, power forward spot. You can have a guy, you can have Malik Monk be the shortest player on, your, you know, on, on, on the court for you and not ask him to initiate much of that offense. So I think it's gonna, he's going to have to kind of go to the right spot but certainly when you have that kind of shooting, and look, shooting is sometimes some of the one of the tougher skills to really translate. And the fact that he's 6'3", you know, if he has six, seven guys with NBA length and speed closing out on him, it might be a, you know, a half second here or there might be the difference between a shot that goes in and a shot that doesn't at a high rate. But I do think the fact that he elevates so well on his jump shot and he gets it out so quickly, I think he'll be able to overcome that. But there is always a, a slight concern about whether or not a shot is going to translate and for him, it really has to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, it's interesting to hear that you have him. Uh, I mean, you have him sixth on your Sixers big board. So I'm guessing he's like around eighth or so on your league wide. Yeah, probably. I haven't actually fleshed it out. This first year, I haven't. You know, I, I, I kind of do a lot for Draft Express, but in the past, I had done um, mock drafts and big boards for USA Today, and I'm, I'm not mm-hmm. doing that this year because I'm focusing a little bit more on, on writing about the Sixers full time. So I don't know if I have it quite fleshed out, but yeah, it would probably be somewhere in that range. Seven to eight range. Oh, okay, yeah. cool. Um, so you have, let's go down a little bit further. You had Darren Fox on your Sixers big board. You have him seventh. You have Jason Tatum eighth. Yep. Um, talk to us about what you like out of Tatum, then also what worries you from him. Well, I mean, I, I think Tatum has a very high skill level. And you look at him and his footwork and the diversity of moves he has is, is very good. And certainly there are questions about his athleticism, and I share those concerns. But I think there's a, a pretty reasonable chance that he's going to at least be a contributor and kind of like a solid starter type guy with upside to be a little more than that if he can you know, kind of continue to expand his game, specifically to the NBA three-point line, to overcome that. My concern with the Sixers is I think he's pretty locked in as a defender. I think he's going to be best at the four. Maybe at times you can get away with him at the three, but certainly not any more than that. And when I look at guys like Isaac and Jackson, and I think they can all legitimately defend three spots. So I think that versatility is big, especially because, um, you know, you have Ben Simmons on the roster. You have Dario Saric on the roster. And both of them, you know, I think Simmons is capable of at times defending the three, but I would prefer him really defending the four and being in position for rebounds and, and being able to push the ball in transition. I think that's his best spot. So when you have two guys already on the roster where their best spot is a, a power forward defender, I'm not sure how much interest I have, unless I really thought Jason Tatum was going to be a 20-plus point-per-game scorer and a real focal point, and I'm not sure I quite see that. I think he's going to be good, but I'm not sure he's going to be good enough to really overcome that glut you already kind of have at the 4-5 for the Sixers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Also, we have a Duke guy already that we had a bad experience with, so I'm, I'm out on Duke players for a while. We need to... Just clear the roster of those before we could take any more. Um, he also, I mean, 
Doesn't it seem like he's definitely just going to end up in Orlando, and they're going to force Aaron <laughs> Gordon back to the three, and it's just going to be like a never-ending cycle of putting Aaron Gordon out of position? It's, yeah, it's, it's fated to happen. Aaron, Aaron Gordon's career has made me slightly sad. In part, <laughs> in part because I still have no idea what he can be because he's, he's been so out of position. Right, yeah, Morton and I both, I mean, we've been pretty merciless about the Magic for quite some time, so... Who knows? Now with this new management, maybe you know it's the Milwaukee guys who hit on Giannis and they hit on a bunch of the reaches, quote unquote, of the draft. So maybe they surprise us all and take someone who's not being mentioned in that number six range and say, "Screw it, we don't. <laughs> we actually want to play Aaron Gordon in position." But right. uh, yeah, we'll we'll see what happens with Tatum. So. Uh, can you talk just briefly about uh, some of the late lottery or mid-first-round guys that have your eye? I know, Morton, I said you're not a Bulls fan, but assuming you make up with them between now and the draft, the Bulls are 16 on the board, so maybe some guys that the Bulls uh, <laughs> should have their eye on. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think the end of the lottery, I think there's a couple of really good defensive prospects. And Frank Nilkina, Donovan Mitchell, and OG Anunoby. Like I, I like all three of those as potential, you know, versatile defensive guys. And I think you know Mitchell doesn't necessarily check that box that you would typically think of because he's only, you know, only like six three, but he has a huge wingspan. I think he's really going to be able to guard either guard position. And Nilkina and Anunoby are just, I mean, they're they're freaks physically. And I think OG Anunoby, along with Isaac, might have the most defensive versatility in the draft. So I think those are guys that kind of have my eye on in the late lottery. I like. Uh, Ike Anagbogu, uh because of just what he could be in terms of his body and his athleticism, he really doesn't have a whole lot of skill level now. But I think you know there's there's something to at least build upon, and then you just get into this power forward center portion of the draft that I'm just not really <laughs> in love with. Like I think I think kind of that 15 through 30 range. If I had to pick a weak spot in this draft, I think that's kind of it because there's just I mean it's it's a lot of big guys who don't have a whole lot of of intrigue for me. And it's you know, with the exception of Jonathan Gene, I think he could be he could be kind of interesting, of separating himself from that group just because of how much being able to cover ground is a priority in today's NBA. So I think there's you know then some some depth later on in the second round, and that's stupid to say because if the second round was so great, then they would be you know first rounders. But I think what I'm saying is that the tail off from 15 to 30, and then from 30 to 45 maybe isn't as severe of a tail off as it typically is, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's still, you know, there's still exactly where a guy like Harry Giles is going to go, because mm-hmm. I don't think we have any real idea how much he can come back from all those injuries. I think that will be interesting to watch. I'm not sure exactly where I would want to be that guy who would take that gamble on him uh, and how high I would want to take that gamble on him. But knowing what I saw in high school and the kind of dynamic athlete I saw there, it'll be interesting to see, you know, kind of follow his career and see how much he can get back into uh, into what he was. Yeah, I've seen a couple mocks put him to Miami at 14, and that actually seems like a really interesting spot for him because I, I feel like if you're putting him on a team where you're asking him to be the number one option right away, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. But you know, if Miami still has Goran Dragic, they still have Whiteside, let's say they bring Dion Waiters back, they can kind of like ease Harry into you know, into the NBA life and hope that his knees can hold up. Um, yeah. So, yeah, he's, he, he's definitely – would you say it's fair to call him, like, the biggest uh, 
high variance pick in that range. Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's so much of it is, is regaining that mobility and athleticism. Uh, he just, he looked like a, a, a stiff big man and not like stiff untalented, but like he just, his hips weren't as fluid. He didn't get out of his breaks nearly as quickly as he did when he was in high school. It's, um, yeah. I mean, if he recovers, he can, he can still be, you know, really be a, a player in this league. I just not sure how much confidence I have in that happening. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm also glad you mentioned OG cause he is, I've wanted him for so long. It's like my, my dream is that the Sixers somehow could pry five and 10 away from Sacramento and then take, you know, whoever at five and get OG at 10 and just, you know, they're used to having guys miss their whole rookie season ever right. anyway. So it's, that's fine. They're used. That's totally a word. We don't mind that. But I'm glad also, you made the injury joke because I was going there too. <laughs> yeah, right. We have to, uh, but at the same time, I then don't want him to come to the Sixers because I want him to get good medical care and maybe <laughs> preserve his career and not play with a torn meniscus. Uh, Mort, are there any guys in that range that you would like to ask Eric about? Oh, John Collins, because I am so intrigued about Collins. I know that he's not a strong defender and, and that he doesn't have a whole bunch of range, but the fact that he's so young and just completed his sophomore season, and am I wrong in, in feeling that people are kind of sleeping on him? He is so productive. Yes, I would have him in, in the late lottery area uh, for sure. And I think playing for Wake... It's probably a little tough to maybe get the recognition he should have deserved, even though you're playing in the ACC. Um, not one of the flashier programs, but yes, I think he, in terms of body type and fluidity and movement, mm. I think he, he he should probably be ranked a little bit higher. And look, he was like you said, he was extremely productive despite playing his, you know, his entire sophomore season at 19 years old. Uh, he to me is is a little bit underrated as a prospect. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, cool. A- anyone else for it? Well, I'm kind of looking down the, the Draft Express list, and the, the one guy that sticks out to me as a big unknown is Terrence Ferguson, since he was in Australia last mm. year. There is not a whole lot of film on him. Like, I've been going into draft mode lately, and that's one of those guys that I'm just so frustrated with because I can't find a lot of footage on him. So, Derek, how much insight do you have in Ferguson? Well, not only did he play in um, – you know, did he, did, he, did he play overseas in Australia, but he also didn't play big minutes over there. You know, that's a – that's a, a professional league where mm. they, I mean, they had some depth there. I think he played like 15 minutes a night. He is, first of all, he's, he's long. He can move his feet really well. And that's kind of the basis of his defensive profile. And I think he's going to, you know, I think that's going to get some, some interest around in the league because of that. He also improved his outside shot. Uh, you know, he, he shot fairly well. Not, not, not great, but he, I think he showed the ability to make shots uh, last year in Australia, and I think that you know, teams are so enamored with potential three and D type prospects that I think that's going to keep his, his you know him pretty high, relatively high at least in the in the in the draft. I think it's going to keep him in the in the twenties in the first round range. The question is really utilizing that. You know, he's rail thin. I mean, mm. tiny. He really needs to develop his his core and upper body strength. And I think that's going to be, he doesn't look to me like he has a kind of physical profile where that's kind of a foregone conclusion. You know, you look at a lot of these guys, and once they get in the NBA, they hit that 19, 20, 21 year old range where you really can add muscle. And you put them in an NBA program, and a lot of people do, I mean, their bodies tra- change pretty drastically. But I think he has a kind of body type where you kind of wonder about that. And he also doesn't necessarily play with the, I don't want to say the highest motor, but in terms of, 
You could tell that he doesn't have the physicality to really compete in a pro league like he was in in, in Australia. And you worry how much he's going to be able to contribute in the NBA because of that. And that affects him as a finisher, that affects him as a, a rebounder, and as a, as a defender as well. And I think that's going to be his two biggest things, three biggest things, improving his ball handling, becoming a more consistent shooter, even though he's shown that he can make the shot, and really fit, finishing out his body and being a little bit more physical of a player. And you kind of hope that it, that kind of mentality clicks when he has a body to compete physically. But it, again, even that doesn't always happen. So there are some concerns, but in a league that is fascinated by potential three and D guys, I think he's going to get a. I think he's going to draw some interest. So a less yeah. less motivated Will Barton, in terms of body, he seems <laughs> somewhat similar. Yeah, and I'm I'm not sure I'd necessarily say motivated. It just seems like he can shy away from contact a little bit. Oh, I okay. guess is what I would say. Yeah. Yeah, Draft Express has him twenty five right now, going to Magic. So, if yeah. if if the Sixers could trade six and twenty five for three, Terrence Ferguson could be a Sixer. Um, okay, Derek, are there are there any uh, late first round guys or second round sleepers that you think should be getting more attention? You know, I like I like Juwan Evans um, mm, from Oklahoma State. Yeah. You know, I think he I, I think he has a kind of body type and and really. People love to talk about three-level scores, but I think he can do a lot. Uh, the way he improved over the course of his career, and, and you know, sometimes you got to worry about—I don't want to say late bloomers because he's not that old. Uh, but a lot of times, when those that shot really translate later on, you worry about that a little bit. But I, I, I trust his shot. Uh, I trust his—you know—ability to kind of get in the paint. I think he's a, a pretty good passer. Like I said, I, th- I think he's just a, a good all-around player. I like him. Uh, when you're talking about him as a, a potential second-round pick, I like him quite a bit. Uh, Jordan Bell from Oregon I like a little bit. Um, there's a couple more kind of wing players later on in the draft. Local guy Josh Hart. Um, mm-hmm. P.J. Dozier I like. Uh, there's, you know, there's, there's, there's some depth in this draft. Like I said, once I think you get kind of past that center-heavy portion in the middle, I think there's, there's some potential finds on the wings later on. Yeah. I mean, and the, <laughs> worth noting, the Sixers have four second-round picks. Yes. It's pretty safe to say they won't be using all four on stateside prospects. you got to figure at least one or two of them are going to be draft and stash guys. They could always package two or three and trade up. So, Well, they have, they have five potential lottery picks in the next three drafts, and then they have four second-round picks in this draft. So, yes, odds are they're probably not going to keep all of them. Right. I think, yeah, I think Brian Colangelo has already basically said, <laughs> my phone is open, so start calling me, GMs. Okay. Uh, but, you know, the deals don't tend to go down until close to the draft, so we'll we'll have a couple more weeks to speculate about guys who will probably not be on the board once <laughs> <laughs> once they actually get on the board. Right. Um, Mort, do you have any final questions for Derek? One, and that's Caleb Swanigan. Uh <clears throat> When you look at Ooh. him, 20 years old, 18 points a game, 12 rebounds. Also, another guy highly productive, all the way down on 40th on Draft Express. What am I missing about Caleb? Yeah, I mean, he's... he's. It's, you're kind of asking me to play devil's advocate because I, I, I do <laughs> like him like him as well, so I'm not sure I can necessarily play devil's advocate because the way his shot improved, like I said, and again, sometimes you kind of look at those guys, and he's not... You know, he's not that old. He just turned 20. But the way his shot improved from his freshman to his sophomore year, I do think I kind of agree with you that he should maybe be getting a little bit more, uh, you know, a little bit more attention than than he should. Mm. Um, 
you know, I think there's a lot of concerns about him defensively and whether or not that's going to translate to the NBA. Uh, certainly when you start drafting some of those big guys who don't really project as a rim, rim protector at all, that makes it a little bit more difficult. But again, in a league that's obsessed with spacing and what he can potentially do if that shot is pure and if that shot is a legitimate improvement, to me, he's a reasonable gamble in the second round. I would probably have him a little bit higher. But I think I think some of those defensive concerns are probably what's keeping him back from, from being like a first-round talent. Yeah, because I, when I saw him play, I mean, it seemed like he had pretty good playmaking abilities. Like, he was a good passer. Yeah, he does. So He does. It, like, but, I mean, he has kind of like that, that bad combination where he doesn't protect the rim. Mm. You can put him in a pick and roll and kind of take advantage of him in space. And he's not really a great rotational defender. I, I mean, it, it's really when we're talking about why he might some teams might have him lower. It's because it's because of that side of the court. Oh, okay. But again, if that shot is if that shot is pure, then you can always find room for a stretch forward. Yeah. Morton, if you wanted Jaleel Okafor, you could just have him. I'm pretty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure we would trade him for anyone on your roster right now. Just That's about anyone. Yeah. Well, if if Jaleel uh, uh, Okafor began shooting forty four point seven percent from downtown, like Caleb, I would. <laughs> Yeah, that would be dare to dream. And I'm not Let's sure what peace. my roster is, Brian. You keep you, you, I, I like the fact that you keep playing a matchmaker. It's it's over, Brian. Yeah. You need to acknowledge I, it. I think Okafor has made a three. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> has he? One oh, for six. There you go. What oh, more can you ask for? Yeah. Oh wow. There you I'm go. sold. The next Carl Anthony Towns. Okay. Well, Gar Foreman is sold. He'll he'll not only send you the best player in the deal. He'll also send you a draft pick because that's how he he rolls. You know? <laughs> well, look, I saw your point guard rotation. Shooting is clearly not high at the uh, on the priority list. <laughs> you you aren't sold on Michael Carter Williams as a prospect anymore. <laughs> oh, and they gave up well, Tony. I was, sold. Snell. I was I was. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. When you Tony lose Snell. a Tony right. Snell deal, that's when you know what's up, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Uh, Derek, any final takeaways about this draft class as a whole that people should be thinking about, you know, in the weeks leading up to the draft? You know, I think, I think the top of the draft and the volatility, not necessarily in the players, but in the teams, when you look at Boston and, you know, we talked about earlier, I wouldn't trade the pick if I was Danny Ainge, but I'm not Danny Ainge. And he probably has a lot more interest in it than, than, than I do because of how close they've been of late and trying to get over that hump. But when you have teams that can move the pick, like, Boston, like the Sixers potentially could, it really sets up a a draft that could just be some completely unpredictable, and I think that's kind of what we have here. And like you said, nothing really happens until we get closer to the draft, so don't expect anything in the next week or two. But I think that you know the day or two leading up to the draft could be could be really fun to watch league wide. Yeah, and we should. I mean, also worth noting, a lot of teams in the twenties have multiple picks. You know. Portland has three, and Sporting News, uh, Sean Devaney reported yesterday that they're shopping one or more of those picks to get out from the <laughs> the plethora of bad contracts they signed last right. summer. Um, Orlando it's gonna, has It's going to take more than a pick around 20 to give me Evan Turner's contract. Sorry. <laughs> oh, my God. If, if, if Brian Colangelo trades for Evan Turner, I'm, more, I'm like you. We'll, we'll be NBA vagabonds. We're going to need to find a new team. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it does seem like there's going to be some fireworks, you know, Carmelo Anthony has been dangled for months now. Um, so who knows? I, I, I think Ian Begley of ESPN reported that 
the Knicks were in on those Portland talks, so who knows if that turns into something. Uh, it should. Yeah. I, I, I mean, yeah. they, they kind of need yeah. to because you have a Kristaps Porzingis right there who needs young, available assets to, to grow alongside him. So if that means taking on Evan Turner, like the Knicks aren't going anywhere in, in you know a couple of years anyway, so why not? And then, of course, like Derek said, it shouldn't be the 20th. It should probably be like the 15th. Right, yeah. right. Or, yeah. 20th and 26th or whatever they right. have. So, I mean... I mean, you can there, get talent. There's a lot of... Yeah. And, you know, the... What's probably wait, more realistic, though, is probably a guy like Mo Harkless. Like, I'll, I'll yeah. take on Mo Harkless's contract long before I'm taking on Evan. Oh, Turner. absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. And I think... who is, I forget if Ian Begley or Sean Devaney reported this, but they floated Myers Leonard out there as well. as another guy they were trying to get rid of. Um, and then Alan Crabb, too, who, you know, the Nets... Have been interested. They were the ones who drove the price up on him last summer, so we know they're interested. I think he does have a trade kicker on his contract, which will make that even more expensive. But again, you know, the Nets, like the Knicks, aren't going anywhere. They need to acquire young talent however they can. So keep an eye out for that over the coming weeks. That will be something to track if the finals continue to be as uncompetitive as they are. Uh, Derek, thanks again for joining us. We really appreciate it. It is my pleasure. Anytime. And uh, again, just remind our listeners where they can find your work. Uh, at Derek Bodner NBA. Great. Yeah. So follow him on Twitter. Check out. He's got uh, for Sixers fans. I'm you. If you're not already following him, you should be. He's got his own website dedicated to Sixers coverage. He's also on Draft Express. Uh, so check him out and on Patreon. Twitter. And patron, yeah, he's got right. Yes, we should totally plug that. Yeah, uh, I beg for money. Yes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> it worked. You're weren't you like held up as one of the examples of patron recently? Uh, yeah, I was actually on a, on a not on, but I was a subject of a TED talk, which was yeah, pretty crazy. Which, yeah, that's it's awesome. been going. It's been going well so far. Yeah, yeah. So everyone, even if you're not a Sixers fan, it's three bucks a month, right, Derek? Yes, correct. Yeah, so so three bucks a month gets you. A lot more of Derek's work, uh, well worth the price. So check him out uh, on Twitter. And again, thank you all for joining us. You can find us on Twitter at the NBA Pod. Uh, you can find all of our uh, Twitter handles in there as well. I should have mentioned at the top of the hour, but our normal third co-host Sarah Chilea could not join us today. She will be back next time, hopefully. She has a thing called a job, which is just foreign to all of us. But she will be back there. Uh, you can find us on iTunes. So check us out there, leave some feedback, uh, subscribe and download as well. And then we are being hosted this year on FanRag Sports. So check them out on Twitter at FanRag Sports and for their NBA content at FanRag NBA. Until next time, I'm Brian Tepork and I was joined by Morton Jensen and Derek Bodner. Have a good one, you two. Likewise, Brian. You too. Welcome to Total Wine and More. It's much more than a wine store. It's the eighth wonder of the world. When people talk about Total Wine and More, they get a little carried away. We're just a big, friendly place run by people with a passion for wine and beer. See, we travel the world to find the best wines from the best regions, and we sell them at the lowest prices anywhere. And friendly, helpful experts at every turn. You know what? Maybe we are the eighth wonder of the world. Shop in-store or online at TotalWine.com. 
Get to Old Navy for the biggest sale of the year. Up to 60% off all back-to-school styles for kids and baby. Get flip-flops for 2 bucks, graphic tees for 4 bucks, shorts for $6, and jeans for $8. Right now, get the best kids' styles at kid-size prices. Just 2 4 6 and $8. Can't wait to wear it? Buy online and pick up in-store free today. Up to 60% off all kids and baby styles now at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 729 to 811. Select styles. Excludes in-store clearance. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations.